Promise No Promises The Tail and the Tongue Episode 14 You never know what you're creating space for The podcast Promise No Promises unfolds a further chapter The Tail and the Tongue this series of episodes arises from conversations between curator and writer Sonia Fernandez-Pan and guests from different storytelling practices and world-making experiences. For a conversation to take place, it is sufficient when two people start talking to each other. However, conversations are never happening just between two people. A conversation holds many bodies, places, stories and experiences. It develops languages and creates interpersonal and temporary dialects. Sharing is also a way of collecting seemingly individual circumstances. Our bodies host many narratives, speaking borrowed words, and making stories an important part of who we become. Stories travel between bodies, welling in them. Always in motion, they have no end. Words make worlds in which reality and its fictions travel through the tongue to become tales. You Never Know What You Are Creating Space For is episode 14, resulting from a conversation with Tessa Bahana. With an academic background in sociology and anthropology, she is the director of 32 Degree East, an independent non-profit organization focused on supporting, creating, and exploring contemporary art in Uganda. Tessa is also part of other international art projects and networks, such as KLA Art Festival, Triangle Network, and Arts Collaboratory. It was Sabel Gavaldon who introduced me to the work of Tessa Bahana and 32 Degree East when I told him about my brief trip to Uganda for the Nyege Nyege Music Festival last year. Talking to Tessa for our podcast, I would discover that she worked on the first editions of the festival, part of a very vibrant music scene in East Africa. Music would appear at the beginning of our conversation, sharing together impressions of music's sensory ability to touch our emotions by bodily listening. The sensory dimension is something that music shares with artistic practices. However, there's a tendency to privilege its conceptual dimension, to locate art in the mind and not in the entire body. Among the new stories that art can tell, create and spread, stories with no words are also very important. Indeed, when asking Tessa Bahana about artistic projects that she remembers with particular affection, she would refer to sound as an immersive element in some of them. The impact of her first aesthetic experience inside the permanent exhibition of a museum would take us back to her childhood and the relevance of existing spaces for this kind of unexpected encounters with art and culture. Our conversation included other conversations we have with people in our personal and effective constellations. 
Being inspired by talking to other people is a kind of gift we receive, often without looking for it. In friendly conversations, ideas often come up that help us to shape or follow directions. They are part of a network that includes serendipities, spontaneity, and the pleasure in encountering each other. In a video from 2019, Tessa Bahana talks about two elements that are fundamental when networking, openness and support. The network of 32 Degree East, the art space she runs from Kampala, includes projects such as Lugara Dudas in Cali, Colombia, among many others. This place for me connects with many people, including Sabel and especially Erika Flores, part of Lugara Dudas' team and also a guest of this podcast series. To borrow Tessa's words, the possibility of creating a community involves a common language and knowing how to relate to each other across differences. This has to do with Tessa's connection between openness and vulnerability. While the word vulnerability is part of the common vocabulary of contemporary art, it is not always a vulnerable practice. Nor is it to speak openly about the difficulties and crises that arise in the life of projects. The specific conditions of each context produce their own particularities and inertias, which merge with the more general dynamics and inertias of the art world. It is precisely supportive networking that allows for the possibility of exchange and collaboration between projects that share similar ethics and desires, encountering different ways of doing things. Another common term in the art context is professional. This word refers to a way of doing or not doing. But it is also an ideological subject with different, sometimes contradictory perspectives. As Tessa points out, the critique of the term must take into account who is professional by default and who is not, and who can ignore prescribed conventions and who cannot. This conversation with Tessa Bahana took place at the end of February. With different times and temperatures, Tessa was in Kampala and I was in Berlin. Besides the topics we talked about, personal number connections, a business card with similar words to Tessa's but a very different meaning, the sound of her surroundings and a late dinner waiting to be served were part of it. The biography of 32 Degree East appeared towards the end of our meeting, being told by Tessa from its origins up to that moment, a few weeks before the opening of the first phase of construction of the building. Her work as director includes the artistic programming, but also the material creation of the space. The relevance of having a physical venue provides the possibility of an open community through physical presence and common intentions. 32 Degree East is a project with an artistic focus, but also a new space for community making in Kampala. The relationship between art, urban space and citizenship is also part of other projects in which Tessa is involved. The KLA Festival, with different editions, grew out of the impulse to bring art into the public space of Kampala. The title of this podcast, You Never Know What You Are Creating Space For, is inspired by a comment from Tessa Bahana during our conversation that brings up unintentional yet essential situations when working. Making space for the unexpected and paying attention to things that happen and we can sense without planning them.
I never grew up around arts. I grew up in Zambia, in Indola, which is a small mining town, and there just wasn't really much arts infrastructure. Though I remember going to the Copper Belt Museum and kind of being like fascinated by all of these objects. I think just that experience of this is something that is specifically designed to allowed to look and like linger and spend time on seeing something. I think when you're a child, there are not really many kind of spaces or places for that. So even though the exhibition never really changed, <laughs> I think there was just something about that being a place specifically for that that I found at least somewhat compelling, even though maybe at the time I couldn't put language to it. I got into art very tangentially, so more from the music side of things. And I had studied sociology and anthropology, and so I think for me, being in Uganda and kind of also a similar context in that there's not much infrastructure, seeing how art opened up possibilities for people to talk about certain things that they didn't really have the moments or opportunities to... It wasn't specifically about through school, like having much experience with that. Like I was terrible in art classes and I was good at almost everything else. So I always had this like somewhat antagonistic relationship to art. <laughs> I was like, why can't I get this thing right? And so I think in school, like it just didn't really have that interest. But then getting older, just kind of really realizing how transformative it is in terms of like values and how what we value and why we value these things so being interested in from that angle and then also from an emotional standpoint Recently, seeing a friend's work actually at Documenta, Mafolo Folo, which is this installation that made you look created. It's this piece that it immerses you, right? Like you enter and it just takes over from whatever it is that you were experiencing before. It like completely demands not just your attention, but like your full self. Because it's, at least for me, maybe even connected to what I was saying about music, like it has this singing, something I think very specific about certain South African struggle songs. I don't have to term it that way. There's probably a much better way that they say it. But just the emotion of it, that regardless of what you're thinking, you can't think anymore, almost. Like it takes you. And then it's also quite large in scale. Like it has, it's this installation that is using land, like talking about land, trying to, in a way, recontextualize certain parts of South African territories that obviously, you know, during apartheid were taken and a lot of the history was lost. And so, yeah, bringing in a new narrative about that land. And so you can spend a lot of time moving through this space that is making you think about territory, but then you're also having this experience of the sound kind of moving through your body. 
that in itself was really powerful. But I think also when I think about artworks that I often find really moving, there's something about scale that there's not enough investment in being able to do things at a large scale. And you realize when you encounter works that are really just breathtaking because of just how immersive they are. It just stops you in your tracks. It like creates that, takes your breath, right? And it shouldn't be that money lends itself to scale, but that is often the case. (laughs) And if it's not money, it's just general, again, valuing, right? Like you think this is important enough to devote time and attention and production into this large thing. And so, yes, that's a very roundabout answer, but (laughs) hopefully there's some things there. Now my sister's a DJ that I think you know. So she'll often talk about how our dad would like play a lot of music just in at parties and things like that. It's, it's one of those things that's just so normal for you that you don't really notice until other people point it out. And then in school, like I would sing, not very well, but like would be involved in like choir and a cappella groups and... And just have always really enjoyed dancing. I think there was just a connection there for me. And then also I got involved in the cultural space because I worked on the first Nyege Nyege, which is the music festival that we talked about. So as a volunteer on the first one, and that's kind of then how I was known as, oh, she's into art, so maybe we should ask her to apply for this role. That was a point of connection for me and I think what's interesting about art like visual arts predominantly if I mean even though there's sound art and performance and all these things but art is that connection of like the logical the rational the knowledge production whatever and the emotional when it becomes too heady and too intellectual then I'm lost a bit and with music you can do that but often It's really, right, it's so much about the body, about instinct and about art can also have that as well as all these other connections that both for me are still so intertwined. Sometimes I can't remember specific conversations, but I remember how the conversations made me feel, right? Or like what I took away from them. With certain people, I just know there'll always be something. They're just good at the conversation. When I saw that question, I thought specifically about a friend of mine. We were talking about this thing I had read recently about the idea that if you ask someone how old they feel in their head, they immediately have an answer. And it's usually younger than they are. We then went around the table asking everyone their answer. And of course, this one friend was like, I feel seven, I feel 12, and I feel 38. And I was like, of course you would have this answer, right? Like everyone else just had this one age and they could explain what. And she just like went on into like, you know, why she feels this and how she can see herself at this point and how in general, as a concept, time isn't real. So then, of course, she'll see these multiples of herself and... That's just an example of how she is because there's something so quintessentially her 
you can always predict the unpredictable in a, in a way with her. Like whatever it is that she'll say, it will just be so magically, perfectly her. Of course, she would say that. Her way of moving through the world is just so inspiring to me. And there's so many times that she's just had a simple answer to something. So for example, she was on a residency with another mutual friend of ours and was talking about making work. With these residencies, there's this pressure, right? Like at the end of the residency, you have to show something. And she's just like, I mean, the work's the work. Whatever will get made is what wants to be made. So whatever it is, it will be kind of. She said it in better ways than that. In a lot of conversations with her, that just is also very perspective shifting, but reassuring at the same time. So funny, as I said that, there's this, I don't know whose business card this is, but it literally says changing perspective. <laughs> There's so many layers to that. Professional is something put upon. It's not a natural state, right? Like there is always this element of putting on, putting upon, like carrying, like wearing a mask of, there's a performance. In a way, I think there is something about professionalism being alien by default. I think it's important to then be critical of it just from that perspective. But I also think... It's difficult if you're coming from a context where you, the sort of default assumption and not even default assumption, but like racism stereotyping is that you're not professional or it's like maybe a privilege in some ways to be able to perform professionalism and to be able to choose whether or not to, because for me, as much as I have issues with it and like this notion of to be taken seriously you have to be professional I also recognize that for a lot of artists if they don't have those tools and don't know how to perform in those ways they are not seen they are not taken as seriously they are continued to be underlooked and stereotyped and it's a difficult thing because it's also like you don't want to play into people's ignorance and justify that. It's not like you're trying to say, you know, you thought I wasn't good enough, but look at me. I am good enough for you. But it's like, I'm not trying to impress you. <laughs> you know, it's like it's not about you in the first place. But I think it's also in part about acknowledging to and making choices where you can, particularly around certain resources. So in some ways learning how and where to use those tools to get what it is that you need for what you're trying to build because some people won't know that those tools even exist and like don't even realize that people are ignoring them because of their lack of professionalism some people see the game and they're like yeah i'm not gonna play by that and in some ways maybe other people around them who are able to then take that on right? Because that often happens. It's also about choice, right? I then can say, I can take this on for an artist who maybe shouldn't have to play that game. But I know that 
in this instance, I can write this email and I can sound a certain way and I can get you those resources so that you don't have to even worry about that. It's an interesting thing, but I think in part also, if you are able to be in spaces where you can question what is being seen as professional and who is making these judgment calls and why, in some ways, I think it's also your duty to, once you're in those spaces, to like kind of call them out and also say, yeah, why is it that we are expecting these things from our artists or from our curator or whatever, right? Using those tools. And some people either know them and know that they exist and know how to use them, and some people don't. And some people choose whether or not to use them. The notion of professionalizing and whatever is often really used as a weapon, I think, for not making ethical choices as well, right? But then, maybe on both sides too, because sometimes it's a way of removing ethics and values from certain decisions and interactions. In a way, I don't know. Let's see where this goes. This is just the thought now. But like on both sides, because I think there are times where even if you are working with someone who's maybe they're a musician or an artist, they like consider like this, this is the creative person in this relationship. There are times where they maybe will do something that is not professional, right? But it's actually what we mean by that is it's not, they didn't do, they weren't kind, they weren't thoughtful, they weren't considerate. But we use professional as this catch-all term to remove maybe the need for relating and like being more vulnerable about where it is that we feel like our expectations were met short or weren't met or, oh, we needed something and we didn't receive it or someone didn't treat us in the way that we wanted to be treated. It happens on both sides, right? Because it is also on the side of the bureaucrats when they're like, ah, you weren't professional. But really, what it is, is they're getting away with not valuing what it is that you're doing. It's a way of not saying the thing and just saying, yeah, professional, we'll just leave it at that and kind of not then talk about what really what we should be talking about. Maybe one of the struggles is also trying to remember the importance of joy and making time to celebrate. Because I think so many times you are, I'll, I'll speak for myself, the things that often get us to accomplish certain things are also not always the best things, right? I work, I overwork, I... I'm too particular about the There are certain things that have gotten to help get 32 to where it is, but the definitely downsides to them. And some of them are like the notion of celebrating and like recognizing work and like really internalizing big moments. Because yes, I'm very self-critical. And I think that leads to, I would like to say, good, well, thought through work. <laughs> 
But it does mean that sometimes things never feel like they're good enough. Which is sad because you should be able to get to celebrate things. So I know that. I know that. Like intellectually and logically. But I don't feel that a lot of times. right? So that's one struggle. I guess a personal struggle. The other struggle is just the context that we're in, the political context that we're in. It's really difficult. Something that I am thinking about a lot now is that, in a way, our, what you call it, not footprint, but like our presence maybe, is growing a bit, like with the center. There's some ways that I don't want it to, because I don't want to be known by the states. I don't want us to be under their eye and them to be aware of what we're doing. Currently in Uganda, right at this moment, there's this huge movement. I mean, there has been ebbs and flows, but the scapegoating of LGBTQ communities, right now it's really bad in that there are clerics who are trying to organize marches to keep out homophobia and keep, not keep out, that would be great, to, <laughs> to keep out homosexuals often this happens when there's some economic crisis and they're like let's give the people something else to be upset about or like rile them up in this way it's like really scary for many people again it, this has happened before and we hope that this will die down but it's just like that constant thing right also i think seeing now how well networked these guys are because it's often a lot of funding coming from u.s churches they're funding bills in ghana they're funding bills here it's really this worldwide movement and so as much as we can also hope that it dies down when it is so funded then it just also will continue to be really scary so that's definitely a struggle Right, like nothing's good enough. You didn't say the right thing and you didn't, you know, have the right practice and whatever. It's really nitpicking and not thinking about the fact that these guys are just networking and so well resourced and so connected and we're just out here ripping each other to shreds. They're just like, yeah, power, that's it. But half of them aren't even left, right? Like super, like more center, right? And they're like, okay, yeah, we have power, but like, uh, should we use it though? You know, like maybe that's a bit too much, right? Like also this lack of imagination. You went through all that to be in power for what? Better things are possible, but are they? (laughs) Are they though? Should they be? Let's just keep things as they are, barely. What kind of vision is even worth sort of supporting? I was reading something today. She's UK-based, but I think originally grew up like somewhere maybe in the Horn of Africa. And she was talking about how in the UK, they basically stigmatized hope. Like you can't even be hopeful. It's like embarrassing to express any kind of hope in anything. Why would you ever give your time towards something that is like, uh, I guess we'll try.
to bring it back to local context. It's kind of everywhere, just a different flavor to it. That what is it that people actually have to hope for and aspire towards? And it's like our imaginations have been so limited. Even when you think about this notion of professionalism, the sad thing is like even within the arts, particularly I think in a lot of countries, least developed, whatever framework you want to use, that's nonsense. Like most extracted countries, I guess. That idea also that if you're in the creative industry, you are an entrepreneur. Even within the cultural sphere, you have completely limited what it should be doing and what it could be doing to say that, yes, it's really about professionalizing the artist to provide them with bigger opportunities for the art market or whatever, right? Like, and we actually get sometimes pushed into those spaces where they'll say, why don't you apply for this grant? Because it's about the creative economies and all these things. That's also definitely a struggle and a struggle with fighting because... We need new stories. Actually, that's a book written by the person who was talking about. We need new stories. We need new imaginaries. Essential for all of us, really, wherever we are. My sister's birthday was on Friday, and so on Saturday we went out. So we went for dinner, and then we just like went to a bar nearby afterwards. And I'm really close to my siblings, and it's something that I took for granted. Like I always thought that everyone was. Well, not everyone, but I didn't realize we were exceptionally close until people would be like, you, you guys hang out a lot. And I'd be like, yeah, you don't. <laughs> it was just really nice to also get to celebrate her and have random conversations about what ages we are in our heads and talk about family stuff. We had also other friends who were there too. We were at dinner with my siblings and then also some of our friends. And then when we went to the bar, there were also other friends who happened to drop by, like we hadn't planned to see them. And so I think those things are always really special and those spontaneous connections. Also maybe the other joys more broadly are that with the work that we do, for the most part, it's our, ourselves. We can't remove our concerns about the world from the day-to-day work. It's so connected. Any frustration you feel, you get to almost channel it through what you do every day. Of course, like in small, tiny, limited ways, but still, it's something and I think there is also a lot of joy in that like when you have moments where you're like man like all of these people are together in this space and I helped create some of what brought them together and like listen to what they're talking about witness this moment of like healing and connection and like see this person like reflecting on their youth in this new way because of this art residency like all of these things where you never even know what it is that you're creating space for and that's really special
she said she's 24 in her head and I said I'm 27 in my head. By that point, I was enough of me, if that makes sense. I think that 27 is kind of where I started to become who I am now. That might change again, so maybe when I'm like 40-something, I'll look back and I'll be like, yeah, at 33, that's when I was who I am now. But I'd say the start of that, I don't know what was happening around that time, but that just feels right to me. I don't feel older than that, than who I am. But I also don't feel younger than that. It just feels, yeah, feels right. <laughs> The story of 32. Basically, it was founded by two British women. So they moved to Uganda around the same time, and one of them was coming from a commercial arts background, and the other one was a more practicing artist, or had given up on a practice, but at least had come from that world. And they enjoyed the art scene, but had noticed that there weren't really any residency spaces or places for artists to really just gather without there being a reason for it. Basically, build community. There's a really well-known university here that has a good arts program, so they spend a lot of time talking to professors there. They talk to different artists, they visit the studios, and then they're like, okay, from what we've seen, it sounds like this is the kind of space that's needed. The idea was that it would be a place for artists to meet and to form community, be a place for artists to also be able to make work without this pressure of production, particularly because there were a lot of artists who were making work for a tourist audience, probably had a lot of things that they would otherwise prefer to be saying and making work about. So with a space, being able to have like the physical space and the resources and also a library that would also connect them to other resources and learning and ideas and perspectives. And also to have lunch, the things that sometimes we take for granted, to have lunch and to have transports to the studio. That's really how it formed. I think a lot of thoughts went into, you know, what is it that artists need that doesn't already exist? It's a small scene, so I think sometimes there is this tendency to be like, I want to start something and I don't care what it is, I just want to be the one to start it, as opposed to supporting what already exists. As they started it, they always said that they wanted to eventually have Ugandans lead the space because they were aware of their role as, you know, these two British women coming in. That was built into the strategic thinking for the space. And I came on board very randomly. Like I mentioned, had been involved with the festival and then Roka, who was the director at the time. We knew each other socially, not super well, but well enough, I guess, and she asked me if I was interested in interviewing for a role, which at the time I didn't even know it was for director. I thought it was like, that's a director of operations or something. And I was like, I guess I could. And then they're like, no, 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 director, director. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. I kind of also saw it as, you know, let me not talk myself out of this thing. Like if people have seen that I could do this job, I should trust them. We'll learn. And if I don't learn enough, then I'll leave. Here we are, many years later, seven years later, gosh.
phase one, right? So there's this whole other chapter to come through eventually. We decided to do the construction in two phases just because of fundraising. We sort of realized that we had enough to get started, but we had this larger dream of what we wanted to do. It's easier to show people what you want to do if you've already done some of it. So that was really the thinking around doing it in these phases and then also glad because it's so exhausting. I can't imagine like doing it all in one go. And I think what's nice is that it also keeps the energy, right? Like for people, for the community to to keep using the space and to get to know it and to also get to shape what its future ends up being. So we're really looking forward to what comes with that, like learning from how people use the space. In terms of the actual opening, which is in less than a month, programming-wise, there's going to be a lot on, but part of my thinking, too, was that it's not every day that something like this happens, and particularly to be building in these times, like, what does it mean, right, to be constructing something, feeling the weight of that and the possibility of that as well, kind of having wanting to have a moment to really feel that. At least for me, like getting to this part with 32 hasn't been just about us. For me, what's interesting is to use this to talk about other ideas of what other people are doing um, and how people are thinking about what kind of future we're building, right? Why are you investing so much into art? Even just to be able to find the funding for it. You can find funding maybe for medicine, particularly locally. There are people who have money for and give, I guess, maybe medicine and maybe education. But the notion of giving towards art is like really seen as such a luxury. That was an interesting thing to confront. It's also been maybe kind of fun to see people who you can tell just don't really think art is important and like they come to the space and they're like okay wow we did this without you (laughs) to show that literally here like this physical thing that clearly there was a lot of investment in that also has a particular look to it as well that is very unique and stands out and calls attention but also not like in a gross way good attention i hope that's been interesting and enjoyable. For sure, there's still resistance to just thinking that what we do is important in any way. Big philosophy of mine is go where the energy is. Don't spend a lot of time convincing people who aren't interested. It takes more energy to do that rather than putting in a little bit of energy where there's already energy that then compounds, I guess. This question of sustainable, it's a tough word, but I think this is what happens also when you're like in our spaces where a word is not enough and you have to unpack it and like critique it and break it down to all the things. I was listening to someone recently on a panel and she said something like, what is sustainable anyway? Because we don't, nothing should last forever. In terms of perspectives on nature, nothing lasts forever. Everything is cyclical. When you are building, you have to think about 
the kind of impact that it's having if you're going out of your way to construct something new and not repurpose something then it should be worth the investment the additional material use that's being used with the construction process okay we're investing in the arts and we're building something of value for artists but it's also saying if we are going to build something we recognize that we have the opportunity to also say something with our building about the kinds of buildings that are possible and the alternative forms of architecture that are possible that use knowledge that we already have that our ancestors had that other people from way way back in all parts of the world knew how to use earth in these ways and reintroduce that sometimes that's all it takes is like showing someone that ah it's possible We're really lucky, like we're part of a number of different networks and I think that's so much of how the learning happens and how much of the growth happens and being able to deal with the challenges and struggles and all of that. Even though maybe it's not strict political solidarity, it's definitely solidarity in some ways. Just knowing that you're not alone and that you have people who have at least dealt with things that are somewhat similar but then different in really interesting ways that's really special about learning how people do things in their context because then it also gives you ideas but also just opens up how you think about things or how you see things and i wish everyone could have that experience of just like knowing that your surroundings are not everything there's just so many other ways of doing things and being and interacting and the challenges that come from dealing with differences right like different languages and time zones and cultures and times that people eat <laughs> there are all these little things but that you grow so much in its fluency right literacy in that there's always this learning in terms of cultural adapting maybe I should say this in this way instead or maybe they mean this in this way or maybe I shouldn't take it that way even though I don't know how they mean it. <laughs> so there's a lot to begin by that and even just approaching things from a certain lens and then being like, "Ha, oh, okay. I thought I was right, but actually and this other way is maybe really annoying, but maybe my way is not the way of doing it. It is something to get from this other approach." It's really one of the best things that I get to be a part of. Promise no promises is a podcast series produced by the Center for Gender and Equality, a research project of the Institute Art, Gender, Nature at the Basel Academy of Art and Design, FHNW. Conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of gender in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit dertank.ch. 
or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Recording and editing Sonia Fernandez Pan. Final editing and voiceover Elena Caesar. Music S. McAvoy. Research team Tabea Rothfuchs and Marion Ritzmann. Press and communication Anna Franke. Technical support Esther Hunziger, Karin Bohrer, Konrad Siegel and Chris Handberg. Copyright by Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HDK, Basel, FHNW, 2023.